Hello and welcome to our listeners to Voltec Tech Talks podcast episode 14. Today, Sherbaz Hashmi and I will be discussing the upcoming big tech CEO congressional hearing on October 28th, preceding the US election. How are you doing today, Shabazz? I'm doing very well, John. How about yourself? Swimmingly, thank you. Keen for this one. Oh, this is a very interesting one. I was very into our whole podcast on fake news and filter bubbles. So this is very similar to what we were talking about before, except actually applied in some, I guess, congressional hearing, right? Yeah, the content of both these episodes, I guess, feed into one another very much as in the digital disinformation and filter bubbles nature of our seventh episode. But yeah, so we're trying to take a strictly apolitical stance on this one. This is to you listeners out there. This is a heavily politicized issue these days, but we cannot help but lament the fact that it, it is a, a relevant technology related topic that we ought to discuss and we shouldn't shy away from it just because it is politicized. That is not our fault, but we will try our very best to stay factual and not be partisan about this. And as best we can just go by the statistics and what makes most sense, I suppose. I completely agree with that. With these things, you've always got a partisan component to it. And to be honest, while researching this one, I was rather surprised that anyone would have a different opinion on this because it seems pretty obvious. Um, and I think both parties are advocating for the same thing, but the reasoning behind the advocation is a bit different. So all in all, we'll try to stay as apolitical as we can. If we do seem to lean a certain way, um, trust us, we're just doing it based on fact and we really don't affiliate ourselves with either party. We've left all of our personal affiliations at the door. Absolutely. So with that said, according to a Politico article scoured through today, this upcoming hearing is a House antitrust committee featuring the heads of Twitter, Facebook and Google. So this differs from, you know, the gang we saw at the last hearing in that that included Facebook, Google, Amazon and Apple. So that was more, I guess, the theme was tech giants, whereas this one is very much the social media platform providers, Google, Facebook, and Twitter. With Google, is it Google Chats or? They have YouTube. Oh, I didn't even think of that. That's enormous. There you go. Yeah. You never, I never really thought of YouTube as a social media platform. I saw it as a, you know, messaging site. Well, no, like a video site. But yeah. when you actually break it down, how many comments do you see on a YouTube video? An incredible amount. YouTube as a platform inspires a lot of loyalty and I guess loyalism amongst people who follow certain content creators. And it has a way of managing to shove as much of that person's content in your direction as possible. Or even the theme, because based on recommendations, right? They have a recommendation engine that, you know, you start watching and you're like, well, this is good. But you don't have to tell YouTube it's good. They know you think it's good because they see how long you watch the video for. And then they try and generate other content similar to that content to hook you in. So it doesn't even need to necessarily be the same content creator. It can just be the same theme. So I definitely see why this is on top here. The YouTube algorithm algorithm, sorry, has 
I don't think it's really gotten flack because it's just really good at doing its job. But something I would recommend to you and our listeners is a podcast I listened to a while back called Down the Rabbit Hole. It goes into this idea a bit where the YouTube algorithm has actually spurred a lot of people down this sort of dangerous extremist sort of rabbit hole of YouTube. And it has a way of getting you saturated with that sort of specific media. And it is, you know, I can assume that similar issues are what have contributed to this hearing, you know, being affected. So they were ready to subpoena all of these tech CEOs in case they weren't ready to cooperate and show up. So the YouTube rabbit, the YouTube suggestions algorithm is among many of these very powerful tools that are just so good at figuring out what you like and what you want to watch that it has become dangerous to some people. But it's really interesting because I bet you these algorithms were not designed to be politically aligning. These algorithms thought, hey, this guy is into, let's say we have Billy, who really likes his sports cars. Billy watch a few, watches a few videos on Ferraris. And then we try to figure out what that's linked to. I don't know how they work under the hood, of course, but it must be trying to find similar content. So I think it's very interesting that it's being used with these political groups. But is it really the tech CEO's fault? Who knows? But I guess that's what we're getting into today, right? Yeah. I mean, the whole fault thing, like if you guys haven't listened, our seventh episode was regarding just that fake news, filter bubbles and disinformation. And we for a while were, you know, questioning whether humans like to organize themselves in into these filter bubbles anyway if these algorithms are only showing us what we want to see then would we not end up there possibly anyway very hard to say yeah like who knows who knows but maybe you saw something on youtube that pushed you even further you know like i can see like this being like an onion almost many layers maybe without youtube you would have stayed on the surface then can you really blame YouTube? I don't know. But we do talk about this in episode seven. So if you guys are into this, feel free to go back and we hope you enjoy it. But finish this one first because this is going to be very good as well. Yep, stay with us. Okay, so to outline, I, I suppose, the controversy of the, the background behind this hearing, section 230 of the Communications Decency Act in the US gives internet companies immunity from lawsuits over users' posts, as well as broad leeway to moderate content. So the Republicans have have said that the protections enshrined in this should be narrowed. Their position is that Facebook and Twitter specifically have too much freedom in their ability to censor or apply tags to politically conservative posts. And from the Democratic Party, the hearing on the tech companies is supposedly regarding their control or lack thereof, perhaps over hate speech and misinformation on their platforms. So there is a fair amount of data out there regarding the rate at which, I guess, extremist groups have used social media platforms to organize or coordinate. And Yeah, sorry to self-promote too much, but in our seventh episode, again, we discussed the Arab Spring and how social media was actually a very instrumental way in which communities 
across Arabic speaking countries were able to organize and form protests against, well, in several sorts of civil uprisings that were occurring over the last few years. But this is, today we're looking at the flip side of that coin, wherein these platforms are being used to propagandize or organize in a more nefarious way, not in a way that is in society's best interests. So one very fringe example I'd like to jump to right now is this report from 2016, Nazis versus ISIS on Twitter, a comparative study of white nationalists and ISIS online social media networks. And so as of 2016, Twitter was ISIS's preferred social media platform. But since that region, since that time, sorry, American white nationalist movements have seen their followers grow by more than 600% since 2012. And today they outperform ISIS in almost every social metric, including follower counts to tweets per day. Wait, so let's just rewind a little. So you're saying that that's really interesting. I've never thought that Nazis and ISIS would be competing on anything, let alone Twitter, eh? And just to be clear, this isn't a literal competition where people are supporting a sports team or anything, right? But I don't know. Do you use Twitter often, John? I don't personally. Um, Only when I'm interested in certain projects, I guess. Um, Not very often, though. I don't follow people or organizations. Interesting. Because whenever I think about Twitter, right, I'm just thinking about, like, maybe that random software engineer who has his own posts. Or you can think about the big tech CEO who you follow. Or actors, actresses. You know, those kinds of people. So now... Putting this into context, I'm actually really surprised when I first read this that these organizations would even have anything to do with Twitter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I can. So you're saying it was like initially surprising that ISIS would be recruiting people and propagandizing through Twitter? Yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense when you think about it. Like, you've got the entire world at your fingertips, but at the same time, the way I guess most average people use Twitter, it's just mind boggling to think that these extremist organizations are there too. Like never once have I come across this on my feed, but maybe this is going back to the whole YouTube algorithm side of things. Maybe Twitter, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they have algorithms that suggest content. And maybe because we have nothing to do with that side of things, it's just an outlandish thought but apparently not. Yeah, I, I th- I'd like to conjecture that perhaps Twitter was also very surprised at the degree to which ISIS was adopting their service to recruit people because they, if we check out this report, Shabazz here, the extremism one with measuring the impact of ISIS social media strategy, We'll add links in the description, by the way, for all the reports we're talking about today. So you can check out these images for yourself. Yeah. But 
this chart here details the rate at which Twitter accounts manage to execute tweets, I suppose, versus the rate at which they get suspended. And so there's a line showing the ordinary rate of suspension for Twitter accounts. And then there's a different line for ISIS accounts. And what it shows is that a great many of them managed to pop off between tens and hundreds or thousands even. It seems that it, the average sits between hundreds or thousands. So these are just uh, just assume that many of these, I think like tw- 20, 24,000 ISIS users on Twitter have made 17 million tweets that span all of 2015. That's an insane number. And judging by this graph, the rate at which they were suspended was actually very low compared to the rates of suspension for other Twitter accounts. Why? I can only guess, but very interesting fact to note. True. And you kind of start hypothesizing, don't you? You wonder why? Is it because the content moderator teams weren't looking for it? Is it because people in these circles are less likely to report posts? Is there some social stigma there? Or like if I'm reporting this, maybe they'll start looking at me. Could be language based too. Could be language based. I would, I guess, posit that it is to do with the, the language barrier as well as I guess Twitter probably did not need or did not have much experience in moderating extremist groups organizing on their platform. So they weren't looking for it as much. And I don't think you're the only one with that opinion because in 2017, QZ.com published a headline where they said, Twitter doesn't need more policies. It needs diverse moderators. Now, if you're moderators, I'm not saying this is the case, but hypothetically, if you're moderators, if if the majority of your moderation team is in the country this company started up in, which is America, right? What's the likelihood of stuff in Arabic getting caught? Caught. Or stuff in any other language, for that matter? Um, Minimal. Exactly. And just think about how many different countries use these services. Like, we're talking about a congressional hearing. This is strictly in the US, right? But, like, last time I checked, 2.6 billion people have Facebook accounts. Right? And the population of America is around 300,000. So maybe there is an argument to be made that, there, that these platforms should be outsourcing their moderation or at least doing it with staff members that are in tune with all of these different, I guess, societies. And maybe American moderators don't know where to look. Maybe they don't know the culture. Maybe there's, there's so much at play here, right? That's really quite an interesting idea that they should probably, I guess, decentralize the moderation of their platform. Because, you know, if 99% of them are in the US, it is de facto centralized. Hence, they're only getting this, you know, monolith of opinions, I guess, that are only really relevant to US citizens. On the Arabic language thing, though, before though, so in writing this report, the writers gained access to a data set containing 
9.3 billion tweets in the Arabic language in 2015. And... They used a crowdsourcing initiative from the anonymous hacking group and identified 25,000 ISIS sympathizers and supporters through crowdsourced reporting to those who aren't aware of the anonymous hacking group. Pretty much as it sounds. (laughs) No one knows who they are, but they get up to some shenanigans. Yeah, if you guys have ever seen the whole Guy Fawkes mask, um, basically, if you were a 13-year-old nerd who was obsessed with this idea of vigilantism through the computer, you would have been interested in these guys. Now, of course, anonymous, the whole idea behind this group is that anyone can become anonymous and anyone can join this fight against the bad guys. Now, it's so vague. It's like the bad guys can be anyone. It really doesn't matter. And the person who is anonymous can be anyone. So it's kind of interesting seeing them here, but they're basically like computer vigilantes. And they've been around for a very long time. Yeah, they have. I'm just scrolling through the Wikipedia page right now, and it goes on and on. Many projects per year. And I don't even think it's one group. No, they'd be very decentralized, I'm sure. There'd just be a lot of different vigilantes in there. That's what I'm thinking. I don't even think there is really a they. I mean, there is, but at the same time, there isn't. Anyone can opt in, so there's no quality control either. So, like, surely people could just co-opt the name and, like... Yeah, but, like, if you're not doing anything meaningful and you call yourself anonymous, I mean, yeah, sure. But you're the only one who's looking, right? Yeah. No one knows, so... No one knows. (laughs) Exactly. So they found 25,000 ISIS sympathizers and supporters through crowdsourced reporting. Interesting. Yep. So again, we're kind of just trying to illustrate tangible cause for, you know, the, the democratic argument for this hearing, wherein these platforms have been used to allow extremist groups to organize and that is possibly something that we should actively avoid and they should take more of a stance on policing these practices. This is what the Democratic Party is saying. We're trying to have this hearing come about. Which is crazy, right? Because every second, according to... where What is this? Um, so according to this website, I think it's like DAS... A-Y-C-E, David Sace, um, every second, on average, around 6,000 tweets are tweeted. That's way too many. <laughs> You'd think so, but I'm just going down here, but it seems to be... Insane number. So, how do you moderate that? Like, I don't know if you know this, but I read somewhere that Facebook has 20,000 content moderators. Let me have a look. No, no, 15,000. According to BBC.com, in 2020, Facebook had approximately 15,000 content moderators in the US who were hired by third-party contracting companies. Again, that comes back to our first point. It's all centralized. It's all of people of the same culture. You've obviously got a gap. But more so, 6,000 tweets a second. Facebook has 15,000 moderators. I'm assuming Twitter must be somewhere similar. But they're not advertising it, so maybe not. 
That's... They've got to do one every two and a half seconds or something. That's what I'm saying. And if it's in a different language, like, it's a really cool idea. And I think it's very important. But it's very hard to imagine a world in which you're doing something about it very soon. But, you know, you do have artificial intelligence. You could have a risk factor associated with every tweet. And only the high-risk ones come along. I don't know. As in, you use an algorithm to determine if a given tweet fits the risk metric, and then you can, if it does, then have it vetted by AI. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But who's going to pay for that computing power? Do you know what I mean? It's like, yes, you can make it law, but at the end of the day, these guys are businesses. They can't hire, I don't know, maybe they can. Maybe we should get out of this mentality. But I've always viewed the internet as this free space where everyone can just yell anything they want. And maybe that's what needs to change. Yeah. Although I get, surely these tech giants have such extraordinary margins already, like as software companies primarily or data management, etc. I don't know. Um, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I mean, a lot of startups don't even post a profit. Like I think YouTube was making losses for years and years. I think they made their first profit very recently. Really? Yeah. That surprises um, me. So maybe? I don't know. Okay. Back to the Nazis versus ISIS. Yeah. Sounds, like sounds like a sounds an insane competition, but <laughs> again, we're just discussing their social media followings. Yeah. And so to quote Again, the Nazis vs. ISIS report. Major American white nationalist movements on Twitter added about 22,000 followers since 2012, an increase of about 600%. This increase was driven in part by organized social media activism, organic growth in the adoption of social media by people interested in white nationalism, and to some extent, the rise of organized trolling communities seeking to flood social media platforms with negative content regardless of participants' actual beliefs. And so there is a a remarkable and very apparent rise in this sort of extremist ideology, particularly on Twitter, obviously much more in more underground social media platforms. Like, I don't know if you've heard of 4chan or 8chan, but kind of like the degenerate sphere of (laughs) social media racism for the most part. That's where it festers more than anywhere else. Yeah. And no one's actually moderating that or maybe people are but i don't think they do i don't think there are moderators on 4chan or anything like that i think that's the point of them there yeah yeah it's underground right yeah so yeah i believe that what we've just gone through kind of illustrates a genuine need to address this as an issue but again we are acknowledging that it is the it is the dark side of the same coin as the fact that these platforms allow people in communities to organize against say institutional corruption or to stand up to their government things like that to protest so it's also a powerful tool for good but we are also acknowledging that it has been used to commit atrocities and organize very violent groups and so i guess we can address the other side of the argument so that would be what the Republican U.S. Party are suggesting as 
the the more the most relevant reasons why the big tech CEOs, particularly the social media giants, should be a part of this hearing. The other side, going from more of a US first perspective, because we've just spoken about how these social media platforms are recruiting everywhere and how it can bring these nefarious groups together and help them breed. But that might be very far away for most of us average folk. So elections. I hear we've got a big election coming up. Not us specifically, but America, right? Yeah, I've also heard similar things on the grapevine. Yeah. So voter fraud is being currently played up to be a significant issue with regards to that upcoming election in the US. Yeah. That being said, studies show that mail-in voter fraud is only a very minor issue and is extremely unlikely to have any impact on the upcoming election. Yeah. Now, this to the Donny Trump supporters out there might seem like a political attack, but rest assured, we are simply trying to go factually once again here. The findings in this report, mail-in voter fraud disinformation 2020, suggest that Donald Trump has perfected the art of harnessing mass media to disseminate and at times reinforce his disinformation campaign by using three core standard practices of professional journalism, which would be elite institutional focus, because he is, after all, the president, and be headline-seeking. If you go and check out a nice picture collage of his definitely the most recent tweets with regards to voter mail-in vote fraud, they are certainly, if anything, headline-seeking. And the third point that they suggest in this report is balance and neutrality and avoiding being seen to take a side. And so using these influences, he has managed to insert this narrative into the mainstream discussion. And due to his clout as the president of a global superpower, it automatically has a lot of legitimacy. And so, yeah, this would kind of feed into the democratic argument because I've seen recently Twitter has started to post markers or like little notes on specifically Donald Trump's tweets that he makes um, suggesting whenever one of them has what they would deem to be, um, I forget the titles, but like essentially fake news or hate speech, something like that. Let me check just so that we're accurate. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Bear with us for a sec. But yeah, Twitter decided to label Trump's tweets in 2020. Glorifying violence is one of the labels they've hidden one of his tweets for. Which is actually really interesting. When was the last time you saw anyone other than maybe political commentators label the words a president of the United States says? Furthermore, giving it such a I guess, out there label, you know, for lack of a better word, like that's a big deal. You're saying you're president, the president of the United States, arguably one of the most powerful countries in the world, is putting out, what did you say? What was the label? Glorifying violence. That's insane. Mm. Like just, we're talking about this now, 
that just that's because of the world we live in. But let's rewind like what? Four years? <laughs> we would have never thought anyone, let alone the platform on which these thoughts are bred. Or just the platform on which which enables these thoughts to be out in the open. They're the ones that are saying this, because 99% of the time, Twitter doesn't label stuff. Absolutely. It's supposed to be just the thing you use. They say the best part of good software is that you don't feel that it's there. And they're actively going out of their way and labeling tweets. Labeling and you know, not censoring, but yeah, they just label the tweets of the president of the United States. It's a funny time we live in. Right? This is insane. He was an avid tweeter before he became president, so we could have seen it coming, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's very interesting because usually having that title, being the president of the United States, gives you... Diplomatic immunity. Yeah, clout. It gives you the clout to be able to say almost anything you want to say. And everyone just listening. Even if they think that you're absolutely mental, they will not say anything. But I guess times have changed. Absolutely, yeah. So I understand. I, it's, it's very interesting. It's, I can see both sides. I really can. I mean, I'm not taking any side here. But, wow, what a time. Wow, indeed. So going down this rabbit hole of trying to understand if voter fraud is a legitimate issue and understanding the the presence of extremism on these platforms. I interestingly found that in a research done on cyber racism and violence in the US for every one one point increase in a state's abortion rate, white right wing terror incidents rose by 7.5%. And on top of that, women entering the workforce, particularly the election of a democratic president have a greater impact and for every 1% increase in female participation in the workforce, right-wing terror incidents increased by 153.1%. What? And so as it turns out, the empowerment of women directly boosts extreme right-wing terrorism. Okay, let's preface this with saying correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation but it's very interesting that these events are happening at the same time and you're seeing these trends sorry so this was um posted just so that we um reference a little this is on um this is this looks like a journal right journalist resource resource.org harvard kennedy school a number of resources at the bottom yeah so this article that we're pulling this from does have quite a few reputable references in there um looks like a few um university research papers so it's not completely you know pulled out of thin air it's definitely something that starts a conversation right definitely does it's not entire it's somewhat relevant to what we're talking about because again we're just trying to understand the intricacies of cyber racism and violence that originates in the sphere of social media so it's certainly worth paying some attention to and so in my research i also found 
basically a former white supremacist when asked about whether it's effective to de-platform people using these you know social media networks twitter particularly de-platforming or kicking extremists off social media plays into a victimhood narrative which is the foundation for many of these groups yeah so just for those of you that aren't familiar with de-platforming is this the same as cancel culture yeah just imagine you're a youtube content creator and suddenly your account's gone oh so this is like the i guess the provider or like the host of the content such as your youtube your twitter removing your account yeah cool, cool, cool just clearing that up yep so if you were say an isis moderator suddenly you don't have any of that anymore so it's just interesting to be talking about isis because i feel like they haven't really been in the sphere of discussion for a few few years now they really haven't or even if you go to other right wing terror groups even i'm sure they're even left wing terror groups i feel like there's you've got extremists on both sides right um yeah not saying that anything that either of these sides do is true just keeping things very vague here not referencing anything but yeah i mean deplatforming must actually play into this victimhood narrative and how hard is it to create another account and how many people can you actually keep track of you know like it would yeah i agree with that fully so you take away this platform and then suddenly you're kind of just pushing them into a darker corner of the internet where they can there let their ideology fester a bit more. I think 4chan, for instance. And yeah, and like not even that. Um, just getting a. So, yeah, YouTube has this habit of whatever they think is really like against their terms of service, which they, they have the right to do this. They go ahead and they um, delete content creator accounts. But then content creators just go ahead and create new channels. And maybe this channel, they won't say that specific thing that got them kicked. But it doesn't even need to be on these edges of the internet because you can easily just move your, well, you can't easily move your following over, but you will have those hardcore supporters move over to your new channel. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You're not banning a person. You're banning the channel content. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be in the, you know, the dark, I guess, corners of 4chan. This can easily be another YouTube channel. And everyone kind of knows that they're on the same wavelength, but maybe they start avoiding words. Maybe they start avoiding trigger words. Maybe they start avoiding topics, you know? But if you go onto their Twitter, they're all still there. Or if you go onto their other social media channel, they're all still there. So it might actually boost their channel. And what else happens when you start kicking people? And if they have somewhat of a following, what happens? People start talking. People start going, hey, did you hear about this guy? Poor guy got kicked. And you're actually spreading their message. The victimhood narrative. Exactly. So I feel like it's not even deplatforming. Well, deplatforming, yes, but it, they're not completely gone from the platforms. They just make new accounts. Yeah. I think um, back when we were in school, um, I had a teacher who described this as being like a hydra. You uh, cut one head off and two grow back. Two grow back. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, with regards to the deplatforming of the ISIS Twitter accounts, yeah, I think they got pretty good at it because they have a catalog of, what do they call them, hashtags that were being regularly associated or correlated. I'm not sure how the process works, but... um. But with ISIS 
posts and tweets. And so eventually I'm assuming that one of the more powerful tools in instantaneously scrubbing them from the internet and having Twitter be, hopefully, hopefully it's ISIS free now, may not be, that would probably be naive to think, but I would assume that they've gotten some effective algorithms or at least, you know, there are probably some hashtags which are effectively banned, I guess. And if you can get 99% of the rubbish off your platform, surely that's good enough for now. Because one of the biggest issues with these social media sites is that you can spread these messages to a very, very large amount of people. So if you say, hey, yeah, Bill, let's go back to Bill. Bill still has his hate speech channel on YouTube, but there are seven people watching. Yeah, there are going to be probably a few hundred bills, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have the same impact. It's just the same as, I'm not saying that this is good or it should happen, but the worrying part of social media is when it gets to millions. Yeah. So it is a silver lining that, that Bill only has six people listening to him. And the moment you you reach reach 10, they find you. Yeah. And they get rid of you. Well, I think you touch upon a very important part of this discussion, which would be, I guess, the overall media saturation. So the reach that the platforms get to other people. Twitter, very important one because so many people have Twitter and use it regularly. As you said, what, 6,000 tweets a second worldwide right now. So imagine out of that, there's a slight proportion that's going to be some xenophobic drivel and hard to find it but as it's on twitter it does have immense reach and that's what we should be more concerned about and how do people reach out to the stuff right you mentioned that catalog so let's say something horrific happened in australia and i kind of want to know what people think about it what do i do i just go hashtag controversial topic and there you go i have the whole world thinking exactly what i'm thinking or I see new perspectives. So I don't know, maybe it works the same way here too. You know, maybe there's an argument to be made. If you blacklist hashtags, maybe you don't have that message being shared. Maybe it's only limited to your friends. And then you've got Bill and his several seven followers, right? Mm. And that's all you have to worry about. So basically there are ways to do this, right? That's what we're trying to say. It doesn't have to be this massive operation where you hire hundreds of thousands of content moderators and they go through every tweet and you don't have to get overwhelmed by the 6,000 tweets per second. You just need to maybe hold these companies accountable. You know, maybe you do. And I think there's a big part of this. We're running a bit short on time today, but there is a big part of this argument with maybe it's time to look at the elections from 2016. Maybe it's time to look at the potential, quote-unquote, fake news. How so? Look at the previous elections, sorry? So, I don't know if you heard, um, well, of course you must have. Everyone must have heard of this. And if you haven't, I'm sincerely sorry. But I'd recommend you look this up. Um, The whole, I guess... Russian interference? Russian interference, Cambridge Analytica. You've got people leveraging these social networks to, I guess, disseminate somewhat false information. And I'm not saying false is in your opinions wrong. I'm saying false is in it's been fact-checked. So if 
stuff like this is happening. I mean, maybe voter fraud isn't what we should be looking at, you know? Maybe we should be looking at this other side of things, you know? Um, what's stopping that from happening again? And how... And that's what Twitter's kind of trying to do with those little labels, right? They're trying to say, hey, this is not factual, or this is violent, or this is wrong. Mm. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. So, like, the converse of pretty much the entire subsection of this discussion we've had is the original reason why the Republican Party are keen for this hearing. They believe that conservative media gets over-censored and they don't have much control over their speech on social media platforms. Um, Now, apparently this is essentially not necessarily provable. I I guess I'm just really dancing around the point here because it's iffy and almost political, but um, there is nothing factual to suggest that they actively censor particularly conservative thought. You know, we've been having this big discussion about the fact that extremist groups are able to organize on there, yet we think that they prioritize banning Republican political speech on their platform. But then again, like, very hard not to get political here. You know, it is really hard. Yeah. But I'm not going to say any political group here. I'm going to keep this very general. But if you've got a party that is not even a party, let's just say, because I know that most people that are from a party are not the same. You've got a massive spectrum. So if I were to say every Democrat was, and then I'll insert some notion, and it's an extreme notion, or every Republican, swap it around is some extreme notion. I can guarantee you, out of a million people, that would probably be maybe a hundred. So, but then again, I mean, if there are certain groups of people that are more likely to publish hate speech, and if a platform, like, just doesn't want you to hate on people, regardless of which party you're from, regardless on who you're hating on, generally, um, or you don't want, um, just false allegations against people on your platform. I think it's within your right to say no. And I think it goes both ways. If there's some extreme, like, left-wing person saying things about Donald Trump that aren't true, I think that should also be policed. And I think it goes both ways. So, like, if there's... Yeah, the thing is, how can you monitor this? And how can... Like, misinformation has been part of humanity since the start you know well the whole misinformation thing though sadly also politicized in that alternative facts are now represented as equal to normal facts but that's always been the case just i I just i mean i'm putting it out there when was the last time you saw a political candidate that hadn't told a little white lie or bent the truth a little i mean we're trying to police this but has it really ever been policed in the real world not properly no the way I kind of, the way in which the American view of absolutely protected freedom of speech kind of, it does at present align with the internet. We can, I guess, assume that it's just, you know, a lot of internet development occurred in America. So a lot of the standard for internet 
behavior comes from there. Yeah, so you're basically saying a lot of the stuff, like the way the internet works is because it's mostly American. And I have to say, yes, you're right. Most of these platforms have stemmed from America. So you're bound to see American patterns on here. But I'm just thinking, like, I saw some really crazy statistic. Give me a second. How many lies does the average person tell? Yeah, I was going to mention, sorry, that it's more... We should look at the reach that you are given with these social media platforms as a privilege and not a right. It is your right to say whatever you want in the US, but to have the ability to have millions of people see what you want to say, that ought to be perceived more as a privilege. What's stopping you? Okay, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Nothing I'm about to say actually aligns with my actual beliefs. Um, and I'm sure that goes for you as well. We're just having, we're two guys having a conversation. Um, just looking at these perspectives. But who's to say I didn't put posters around everywhere saying, hey, I've got a rally. Um, I'm going to be at X location at Y time. Please, we're going to be talking about this insanely controversial topic. Come along. Who's going to stop me? I mean, sure, I might have to notify the police. I'll have to make sure it's peaceful. But I think in America... And we're coming back to your point. No one's stopping me. Now, in Australia, there are massive amounts of laws against hate speech. We don't actually have freedom of speech. We don't. We can't say whatever we want. We are policed. And it's a different perspective, and I know that's how it is in most places. In some places, it's just societally inappropriate to say some things. You can't talk about history. You can't have any opinion i feel like australia is really on the relaxed side of things comparatively i don't know yeah i mean we technically don't have freedom of speech but it is like my understanding is of it isn't that concise i guess but from what i understand it's nothing unreasonable yeah but that's our perspective right (laughs) it's really interesting everyone's on the spectrum we're all we're all but to have your right to run out on the street and shout like racist obscenities at people, I think it's reasonable that that's not really allowed. Completely. And I think most rational human beings agree with you. Right? Yeah. So maybe, maybe Twitter, maybe Facebook should be policed. But how do you do it? And I think we've got some, we've got some pretty, um, sorry. Um, we've got some pretty, um, yeah, we, we've gone through some really, really interesting things and I think it is possible. I think it's possible to stop those, um, cesspools for lack of a better word. Hashtags. I think there are some ways that these companies could do a bit better with identifying these trends. I think there's ways of using artificial intelligence here to give a confidence score on how, I guess, horrific all of these different social media posts are. There's definitely a lot of stuff to be done. Now the question is, should they? And who should? And if you have the freedom of speech in America, does that extend here? Do we need to have different platforms for every country? Should every government be doing what America is doing with TikTok? Should us as Australians say, this is not acceptable? We say that at the border. If we don't agree with someone coming in, we say, hey, sorry, but we can't have you in this country. 
does that extend to voices through the internet? I don't know. Very interesting take. Yeah, I like what you were saying earlier about having, well, particularly if we decentralize the moderation of these platforms, but then have a specific, say, Australian wing of Twitter, wherein everything complies with Australian laws, yada, 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 but let everything be el- else be determined by the politicians. They can have it out in the courts. Oof, but imagine how that would feel as the company, man. Imagine being a company. How many countries are there? You know? Yeah, that would be a debacle, wouldn't it? Like, you're just barely trying to get this platform, one platform, for 2.6 billion people. You're trying to keep it running. You're trying to have servers. You're trying to implement new features. You've got competition around you. Maybe not after that last lawsuit we heard of. But, you know, we'd like to think there's some competition. Who's to say catering for all of these different countries lets the little guy come out on top? Because they're not. And it's really easy for people to shift platforms, you know? Is Twitter the little guy? No, but let's say another, let's say another startup wants to change the way social media is done. You're too busy pandering to all these different countries' needs. Next thing you know, some little guy comes up, doesn't have to follow these regulations. Most countries don't even care because no one's on there. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of arguments to be made. Yeah, definitely a lot to think about there. Yeah, but it's it's very, very fascinating. And I understand quite a few perspectives here. And I don't think that any perspective is necessarily right or wrong. But, you know. Yeah, but some are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some, we hate to say it without getting political. Yeah. There, of course, no one here is saying that hate speech is acceptable. No one here is saying that labeling people discriminating against people unless you know they're horrific people okay maybe we're getting a little political but you know i think 99 percent of the population agrees with us hopefully and hopefully a hundred percent of the listeners agree with us <laughs> at least a good amount of you guys yeah anyway do you reckon we've covered yeah about all that today shabazz i mean this was a really nice discussion as always john as always, a pleasure. It's always been a pleasure. So, um, yeah, and honestly, if you guys are interested, feel free to, you know, send us a message. Let us know what you think. If you think that you have another idea, if you think there is some stuff we should have gone into and we just passed over, we have a habit of revisiting older topics when new developments happen, and we'd be really, really keen on hearing from you. So... To reach out, feel free to send an email to john at v-o-l-t-e-c dot i-o or sherbaz, s-h-e-r-b-a-z at voltec dot i-o and share your thoughts. Honestly, let's make this a conversation. It doesn't just have to be us two. Awesome. I totally back that. All right. Thank you very much to our audience. Thank you, Shabazz, once again. Yeah, thank you. And till next time on Voltec Tech Talks. Until next time. Take care, man. Take care, Shabazz.